Exodus 20, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And uh, let's pray, and then we're going to get into it like what Pastor Steve said, a very, very familiar text. Even if you don't think it's familiar, it's familiar. So um, we're going to get into it. Let's pray. Father, I praise you. Lord, I love that last song as we just lift our hands up, lift our hearts to you with our hands, and we say, Lord, all we have is yours because you redeemed us, you saved us. And we voluntarily just again tonight just say, Lord, we lift our souls to you. You are God. You are worthy of praise. You're worthy of every breath that we breathe. And so, Lord, as we come to your word tonight, help us not to come with a lazy or um, kind of lackadaisical approach or something like that. Lord, help us to come actually with a sense of awe that we're coming to the written, holy word of God. And, Lord, we believe there's power in your word. And so, Lord, would you transform us, make us more like Jesus because we've spent time with you this hour we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So yeah, we come to a really familiar passage. We keep saying that. Um, let me just give you a really, really quick review of where we just were. Last week, if you were here, um, you know that we've been tracking the progress of the children of Israel, and right now they're camping out at their last camping spot before they're going to try at least to make their way into the promised land. They're camped at the base of Mount Sinai. They're going to be there for 11 months. And, and what's super significant, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know this. If you're not familiar, it's fine. But what's so significant about this camping spot, if we can call it that, is that this is where Moses is going to receive the law. The Ten Commandments, not just the Ten Commandments, as we'll go on starting next week. There's all these other uh, you know, um, ceremonial laws and, and, and whatnot and instructions for how to build the tabernacle and so on and so forth. But um, last week what we saw is that God told Moses, hey, tell the people to get ready because I'm going to meet with them. And they had three days to prepare themselves. And on that third day, God came down on Mount Sinai. Do you guys remember this? If you've read it or if you were here, something of the actual glory of God touched down on that mountain and it says there was thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and it was shaking and the mountain was shaking, but the people were shaking. They were so terrified of the presence of God. And what we talked about was that whole chapter spoke of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the unapproachability of God. He even said, and I, and I mentioned this Sunday too, so I know it's redundant at this point perhaps, but... Um, he said, set boundaries. You can't cross this line. If you do, you're dead. And we talked about how unless something changes, we cannot just have free access to God. We know what that change is, though. It's Jesus. Amen? Um, so we'll talk that we're going to keep coming back to that again and again. But now when we come to chapter 20, we're going to get the legitimate, actual um, Ten Commandments. And this is just a great section. Just as way of introduction, um, I was talking to my wife about this. I, I've been so blessed in the last few days just studying the law. And that sounds maybe a little bit weird, like, really, the law? Yeah, because the more I study the law, the more I'm grateful for grace. <laughs> Amen? The more, it's, it's not like I'm studying and I'm like, yeah, we need to get back to this. I'm like, praise God that Jesus paid for all my inability to keep this law 
Praise God that Jesus fulfilled every bit of the law. Praise God in the New Testament Christianity that we are in. We, the law doesn't have jurisdiction over us in that same way. As, as Pastor Steve has been teaching us, there's a new law. We're not lawless. We have a new law, the law of the Spirit and of life, which is a greater law uh, than even the letter of the law. So um, just blessed by that. Last week I mentioned like six different reasons for the law. And I admittedly stole that from Warren Wiersbe, but I gave you those six different reasons for the law. I want to just say this before we get into the Ten Commandments. What was not included on that list of reasons for God giving the Mosaic Law, what was not included, was that it is a means of obtaining righteousness. And I, I think we know this, but it, it is worthy of repeating. Guys, we have to get this down. The law was not added to give to people so that they could do something to obtain a right standing with God. Are we clear on that? The law does not, could not, was never intended to save anyone or make anybody right. And I think there's a lot of confusion in that. Um, I think there's a lot of people that think if I just keep these rules, if I check the boxes, somehow if I check them, I know I don't get them all right, but if I somehow can get more right than I do wrong, when I get to heaven, God will put them on the scales, and if it tips in the right direction, I'm in. Do we know that that is not how it works? The Bible actually says, it, cursed are you if you don't keep if you want to keep the law, you've got to keep every bit of the law. You don't get to pick and choose. And once you've broken one part of the law, you've broken the entire law. It's heavy. But I just want to read this again because as we get into the Ten Commandments, you and I, we're probably going to be face-to-face with, again, in a healthy way, our inability to do it. So I want to preload with this and then we'll jump in. This is, uh, jot it down or you can turn there quickly. This is from Romans chapter 3. We were there several months ago with, with Pastor Steve. But I just want to read verses 19 and 20. Let it sink in. Paul says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable. Listen to verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is emphatic. Point blank. No human being can be justified by keeping the works of the law. You can't do enough good works. You can't keep this law well enough to where you made it into heaven based on your merit. Then why do we have the law? What was it there for? He said it right there. By the law is the what? Knowledge of sin. The law was given not to make us righteous. The law was given to prove to us that we aren't. I love this quote I found by Theodore Epp. He's a guy I like to read, um, old preacher guy. I like his quote. He sums it up. The purpose of the Mosaic law was to reveal to mankind in general, and Israel in particular, the awful sinfulness of the human heart, just as a thermometer measures the temperature but does not control it. I like that. The law was there to expose the sinful, the awful sinfulness of the human heart. It didn't make the heart awful. It just shows that it is. 
It's like a thermometer, the law, like a thermometer. It tells you what temperature it is, but a thermometer can't change the temperature. It just shows you what it is, like a mirror we talked about last week. Shows you if you're dirty, but can't clean you up. That's what the law does. It is there for the very reason of driving us to our knees that we might beg for mercy and grace. Amen? In fact, I'll go on to say this. It's always been grace. It always will be grace. The law was not added to take away grace, the law was added to drive us towards grace. And we could go on and on and on, but I won't. I just wanted to preload with that before we actually get into it. So let's get in. Um, If you're note-taking, I like to, I'm an outline guy, so I'm going to give you my quick outline. I'm not going to make a big deal of it as we go, but just to kind of show you that the chapter is got three basic chunks to it. The first chunk, verses 1 through 17, is the actual Ten Commandments. Uh, The second part is verses 18 through 21, and that's the general response of the people to the Ten Commandments. And then verses 22 through the end of the chapter, 26, you have um, some seemingly random laws about how to build an altar, and we're going to look at that. So let's go back to the beginning. Verse 1, it says this, And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of slavery. So a couple quick words of introduction. Verse 1, by the way, it says that God spoke these words. If you've ever read through Exodus or the Ten Commandments, um, it can be a little confusing because he actually gives them three times. Did you know that? This is the initial time. This is where God is audibly speaking the Ten Commandments from the mountain. And we're going to see a little bit later on the people are like, Moses, you go talk to him. We don't even want to hear God's voice. It's too gnarly. It's too heavy. So he's speaking the Ten Commandments. Later, chapter 24-ish, Moses is on the hill. He writes the Ten Commandments with his finger on stone. You guys remember that? He comes down the hill, finds the people breaking the commandments, you know, in their actual life. So he literally breaks the Ten Commandments, showing them that they've broken them. But then he has to go get another copy later on in chapter 30-something. He gets another copy from the finger of God. But this is the initial speaking of the Ten Commandments. And before he gets into it, look at verse 2. This is, I think, important. Before the Ten Commandments, he gives them a reminder. A reminder that's twofold. Look at it says. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I think this is actually really important. God says, before I give you these commandments, I want to remind you of something. I am the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the I am. This is the name, Jehovah, we would say, Yahweh. The name he gave to Moses in Exodus 3. He's declaring, I am Jehovah God. And then he says, your God. Then secondly, he says, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What's his reminder? It's twofold. He reminds them of who he is and what he's done. Guys, I have found that those two things are what should drive us in our worship and our obedience to God. If those two things are clearly in sight, if those two things are, let me put it this way, if we're mindful of those things, It will drive us in our worship and inspire us or drive us in our obedience. Does that make sense? You see, here's the thing. When God declares, I'm the Lord, I'm God, 
Do we understand that that right there is enough to worship him forever and ever and ever and ever? What is? That he's God and that he's worthy to be praised. Amen? Just for who he is. The eternal one. No beginning. No end. Always was. All-powerful. All-knowing. All-sovereign. All-loving. This God that is beyond our description, this God who spoke and created the world, he is forever worthy of our praise, whether we feel like it or not, whether we're in the mood or not, he is always worthy of our praise. If my praise is dull and I come to church and I'm just like looking at everybody else worship or looking at the clock or wondering why he did that chord change on the guitar, blah, 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 and I'm just like dull in my worship, it's because I have lost sight of his glory. I'm thinking about other things. And whether it's in the service or just in my personal life, if I don't have that awe factor, it's because I've just stopped thinking about his greatness. He's worthy of our praise. Not only for who he is, but also for what he's done. In this instance, he's talking about, I saved you. How many of you guys are thankful God saved you? How many of you guys, I mean, we go through our day and, and we struggle with bills and we struggle with relationship problems and work issues and things that kind of consume our mind. But at the end of the day, I think a bunch of us in here would say, you know what, all that may be so, but at least I'm not going to hell. I'm saved. And I was lost and I was in sin and I was in slavery of sin. Paul actually says that we were enslaved to sin just like they were enslaved in Egypt. And Jesus redeemed me, redeemed us. Amen? And, and that right there, those two things right there are enough to keep you stoked for all of eternity. Remember on Sunday we talked about Isaiah 6? Those seraphim, I don't know how long they've been flying with two you know, wings covering their eyes, two covering their feet and two flying, probably for like a couple thousand years at least, a couple millennia, I don't know. They don't seem tired of it though. They see the Lord on the throne. They're like, holy, holy, holy. And, they're, and the whole place is shaking. They are perpetually stoked. Why? Because God's in their presence. His holiness. Anyway, I'm getting riled. But one more little note on that. As a worship leader, to maybe to other worship leaders or guys who are, ladies who are interested in worship, I, I really think that those two things should be main themes in our songs who he is and what he's done. Now, there's places for like the emoting kind of like, oh God, where are you? I need you. I feel this. Like, you know, Bethel or whatever. But I'm just kidding. Sorry, that was a horrible joke. But um, there's a place for that because David did that. I mean, look at the Psalms. He's very just raw with his feelings and that's absolutely valid and absolutely good. I just, my personal opinion is, I think what should drive our worship is, is more based on who he is and what he's done, whether it's creation or salvation or deliverance of some kind, but, but that fuels um, the praise of heaven. I challenge you, look at every scene in heaven, and you're going to see that those are the two things, who he is and what he's done is what they're praising him for. Well, let's get into the actual commandments. It's hard to comment on these because in some ways they're just very self-explanatory. They're just laws that are black and white. After declaring that he is God, Look what he says in verse 3. Commandment number one. Here you go. You shall have no other gods before me. Some versions have you'll have no other gods besides me. So he just declares, I am the Lord, and you are to have no other gods besides me. Now what he's not saying there is, um, I know there's a lot of other gods, and as long as I'm on top, you can have them down below, but I just got to be top dog. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying this is exclusive. You are not to worship any other God. I am Jehovah God. You will worship me and worship me alone. Now think about this. They just came out of 400 years of being in Egypt, completely surrounded in a culture where they had gods for everything. That's why the ten plagues, remember the frogs and the river, and they had a god for every day of the week. All the cultures in Canaan, when they get there, they have gods for everything. God of the hills, God of the valleys, God of this, God of that. And God says, no, you're to worship me and me alone. Here's the reality of, of the human condition. We are created to be worshipers. Th this is actually a huge point, especially if you're younger and you haven't figured this out or ever heard this before. You are created to worship. And so if we reject God, we will worship something else as a God. Does that make sense? We'll worship. We will worship something. We will worship someone. It is in our DNA, maybe not physically, but spiritual DNA because we are body, mind, and soul, right, as a people. And, and we are going to worship something. We were created to worship him. But if we don't worship him, we're going to fill that void with something. And then you might say, oh, that, that just seems so third world or uneducated, oh, worshiping false gods. I, I'm way too scientific for that, really. Could be that your God is science, that your God is education. You know what the biggest false God that we worship as people, and I, I, I can say this, I think, 100% certainty in the United States, but I think it's the human nature. You know what the number one false God we worship? Self. We worship ourselves. That's who we worship. Our happiness, our wants, our needs, our this, our this, our body, our that. We are absolutely narcissistic to the core as human beings. We want what we want. We want to do with things we like. It's all about us. And guys, I, I just, it, it's, that's who we'll worship. Or we'll worship money. Or we'll worship pleasure. Or we'll worship God. Or we'll worship intellect. But we if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. We will put a false God. And, and that is the tendency of our, of our humanity is to put things above him and create gods that really aren't gods at all. Does that make sense? But God says, no. There's only one true God and it's me and you're going to worship me and me alone. I know you've been surrounded by all that. I know your cultures that you're going to are going to do that. But you guys, you just worship me. Amen? Amen? Um, I, I made a comment that we were made to worship. I, I always use this story. I had a really good friend for some years. I worked at this store for years and years, and this guy named Derek used to work with me. And um, he got caught selling cocaine out of the back of our store. So he was going to prison for a long time. And plus, I think he, I think he hit somebody in the face with a golf club, too. He, was, he wasn't a Christian. <laughs> but I liked him, and I, I just... You know, I didn't, we didn't hang out that much. But before he went to Blythe Penitentiary in California, um, I, I invited him to church. I think he said it was the first time he'd ever been to church. And I, I was leading worship that, that Wednesday night. It was a Wednesday night. And I'm leading worship, and it's his first time in church ever. And we get done, and the pastor, you know, does his deal, teaching through kind of like this, except for probably quicker. And... The, uh, Derek says to me, he goes, you know, I don't know what that guy was talking about, but that singing part, 
There was something about that singing part, the worship part. And that always just stuck in my brain. That was 20 years ago, but it stuck in my brain because why? Because here's the guy that was lost. Here's the guy that had never been to church, but intuitively he knew, I think I was created to do that, to worship. And God says, worship me and me only. So uh, there's, this is challenging because there's so much you can say about each one, but I don't want to spend so much time on each one. So commandment number two, verse four. This is kind of an overlapping piggyback commandment on the first one. You shall not make for yourself carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above uh, or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water or under the, wa- under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's actually a lot there, but the basic um, commandment was no idols, like no carving images. Now, here's the thing about that. What this would include was carving out any kind of image that would be maybe the, the mentality behind it being an aid to help worship even him. Does that make sense? You know, idol, some like false god idol aside, he's saying don't use any kind of statue or any kind of carving or any kind of image in your quote-unquote aid of helping you worship me. Guys, later on when Aaron does the golden calf, that golden calf was, was symbolic. Basically, they were trying to make something that would help them worship Jehovah God. Does that make sense? It was a leftover of their Egyptian mentality, but God is saying, I don't want any of that Worship of me is not going to be based on anything visual and physical like that. It's going to be based on my word. And Jesus would go on to say later, it would be in spirit and in truth. There's not to be any carved images and statues. And I think we've all been to certain churches and traditions where that has gone out of hand. Bowing down to statues, kissing toes of St. Peter and of Mary or whatever. And that's just, it's, it, that is, in my opinion, a breaking of that commandment. But not only that, just in the pagan cultures all around them, um, they, they were not to have idols. They were not to have carved images of anything. Of, I, I find it interesting that he says anything on the earth or in the sea because in Romans, doesn't it talk about if you refuse to honor God and give thanks to him, he gave them over to their mindset, right? And they began to think that they're wise, but they're actually fools, right? Right? and began to worship the creation rather than the creator. And so images of any kind of thing or any of these false deities or gods or whatever, clearly, clearly prohibited. You know what's crazy? If you get to ever go to Israel, have you guys been to the house, uh, the priest's house there in the old city? Anyway, it's, some tours do it, some don't. But you can go into these remains of this old priestly house that they found, and it was absolutely filled with little idols of like women with massive breasts and things like that carved out of wood. And it was a priest's home. So the point is, is that Israel was so headlong into throughout their whole history, idol worship. They failed in this measure. And oftentimes those idols would be linked to their false gods, which would be linked to lifestyles of sexuality or some kind of something like that that would want them, make them do that. Point is, no carved images. Commandment number three. Oh, I should probably mention this, verse five. He says, don't do this because I'm a jealous God. 
Now, don't get too spooled up about that. I, some people read that and they're like, how could God be a jealous God? I think it was, I heard, I can't say this for sure, I think it was Oprah Winfrey went on record one time when, I think it was her, who said she just couldn't believe in a God who was jealous. Well, that just exposed Oprah Winfrey's ignorance, if I could be so bold, is because that's not what that's talking about. The, 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 the jealousy that's being spoken of here is not some earthly, insecure jealousy. It's a zealous, passionate love jealousy that it says it's got to be exclusive. Let me ask you this, parents. Do you feel at all jealous of your kids if you see your teenager hanging out with a friend who's smoking pot all the time and, and um, looking at pornography and hanging out with crowds and getting into fights? How do you feel about that as a parent? You're like, oh, that's cool. Kids will be kids. I don't care if they hang out with them. I don't think so. You're at a park and you see some guy, like known sex offender, hanging out at the park around your little kid. You, are you, you jealous of that at all, mom and dad? You're going to rage a little bit? Like, oh, no, you don't get to. Why? Because I don't want anybody hurting my kid. I don't want my kid going off and doing those habits because I know what? It'll hurt them and destroy them. You understand? God is saying, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I know something. It's not that I'm insecure and I'm scared. I'm not going to get all your attention if you go after these other gods. God says, if you go after these other gods, it'll destroy you and I love you too much. That's the idea of his jealousy. It's a passionate love that says no. And then he goes on to talk about, he says, look, um, you're not going to bow down and serve them. And he says, and I'm jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and then loving kindness to the generations that love him. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. I will say what it's not saying this is not something like a generational curse that a lot of Christians get really confused on, as if, like, God punishes you because the sins of your ancestors or the sins of your parents. That is not a biblical concept. So go to Ezekiel 18.4, Jeremiah 31.30. You guys can look those up on your own. But they're passages that basically say this, the soul that sins shall surely die. God does not hold you accountable for the sins of your parents. Now, do our sins affect our kids? Yes. And I think that's a lot of what he's talking about. If you go off into idolatry and you start worshiping, you're bringing your family right on into that. And they're going to be held accountable for their actions as well. And we could spend more time, but we won't. Let's get through this. Okay, commandment number four. Four? Three, like I said. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold you, him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And again, some of these are pretty straightforward. Um, what does it mean to take his name in vain? Vain, the word vain just means empty. So the idea is to misuse God's name in a way that is not giving it worth. So, I mean, the number one thing on this would be cussing. We always think of cussing as the first one, like using God's name as a cuss word. Absolutely, that qualifies. But I think it goes beyond that. I think, I think you have to be careful because you can throw around Jesus and throw around God's name in a way that's really not honoring but that can even kind of seem real spiritual. You know what I'm saying? Oh, God told me this. God told me that. I, be careful. Be careful how you use the name of God. Oh, I swear to God. Be careful. I don't, I, we have to be very, very careful. And the whole point of this is, is God's name is holy and is to be reverenced and is not to be made light of. Isn't it interesting that in our culture, completely acceptable to say GD or this or that, and, and, 
But if you mention Buddha or if you mention Muhammad, or you, oh, man, the backlash, right? But God's name is just drug through the mud. I remember one time my stepbrother, Jeff, and I were playing basketball in California, and a bunch of my friends were playing. He was like our youth, my youth pastor at the time. We're playing just some street ball, right? Street ball in the suburbs. <laughs> Anyways, um, we're playing ball, and my friend was just kept saying, God, yeah, you know, just like throwing GD down all the time. And about five or six times in, and I'm like nervous, like, because my stepbrother, who's bold, just says stops. The whole game is like, look, bro, if you take my Lord's name in vain once again, I'm done. I'm not playing ball anymore, okay? You just need to stop it. And I was just like, yeah, what he said. I didn't have the boldness to say anything, but he did, and I appreciate And he did it in a loving way, but like, look, you're taking my Lord's name in vain. And that, that's always stuck out to me, like, wow. I, lo- I appreciated that he did that. Well, not taking the Lord's name in vain, I don't want to point fingers at you or me, but I'm pretty sure we've all done this. We've all done it. Number four, the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the word Sabbath, in the Hebrew, the core meaning of the word is to cease or desist, where the idea is to rest. What God is establishing here is he's saying, look, I I want you to do all your work in six days, but on the seventh day, which would be Saturday, you're to not work, you're to rest. And notice, too, that it says it's a Sabbath Um, to the Lord your God. And the idea is not just physical rest, that was definitely part of it, but it was also a day that was kind of devoted to the Lord in worship and praise to Him. And that was the idea that to the Jewish people, we always have to remember that the law was primarily to the Jewish people. And He says, this is going to be for you guys. Work six days. And by the way, that would have been awesome because they were just slaves for hundreds of years. You know, slaves don't get a day off, right? They were like slaves 24-7, 365. And God's like, you know what? Do your work for six days, but on the seventh day, I command you to rest. And you would have thought they would have been like, yes, hallelujah. They had so much trouble following this law. And by the way, uh, we won't get into it now, but by the time it's in Jesus' day, they had made so many rules and interpretations and things about the Sabbath that the Sabbath actually became a burden instead of a day of rest. All these things you could and couldn't do, and you were afraid to breathe because you might break the Sabbath. They're constantly accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, and he never did. He broke their traditions, but not the Sabbath. The Sabbath, that's an interesting one because, uh, oh, real quick, let me, let me point this out as well. Did you notice the principle on which he made this law? The principle was creation. God said, I created everything in six days, but then on the seventh day, I created the seventh day, but that was just to rest. How many of you guys think that God created the Sabbath because he was really tired after six days of creation? No. It wasn't like God was like, whew, I need a break. I'm going to create a rest day. God could have just kept on creating and kept on creating, 
But he stops and he says, you know, I'm going to just have a day and I'm going to just kind of work it into the whole creation story. Could have been a six-day week. And he made it a seven-day week. And he said, look, we're going to have a seventh day and it's going to be restful. And so that's, that's the, the principle or the premise of your day of rest. So that was the law. Um, it's interesting. This is one that gets real hairy. People get real uptight about the Sabbath. Let me just remind you of something. As New Testament believers, we are not under the law, any of the law, including the Sabbath law, right? This is Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food, drink, regard of festival or new moon or Sabbath. They are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. Just like all the other laws, just like all the other regulations, all the other festivals, all the other ceremonial things, they were all shadows of the substance. They all were looking, they were foreshadowing the reality, and the reality is Jesus. Amen? Just like the, the, the altar and the sacrifices on the altar, they all speak of Jesus. Just like the Passover speaks of Jesus. Just like you could go on and on and on and on. The Sabbath speaks of Jesus. It means rest. And the idea is, is that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. And Jesus died on the cross and raised from the dead. And Jesus has forgiven our sins. And we, he is our rest. Amen? Do you guys understand that Sunday is not the new Sabbath for Christians? We're not under any kind of law like that at all. Now, having said that, is it wise to take a day off? Yes. See, the Sabbath to me is like tithing. It's pre-law principle. Tithing was in place before the law. We're not under the law to tithe either. But it's a great principle that was there before the law. And I believe that we are fools if we don't catch the heart behind this. And take a day of rest and, and, and relax and, and get refreshed, not only physically, but spiritually. You know who's the worst at doing this? Pastors. We're bad at this. We'll grind. And he says, stop it. Take a day of rest. Why are you burned out? Because you're not resting. And whether it's, doesn't, not just pastoring, but any job. Did you know that when, when God kicked the, the children of Israel out of their land, to Babylon, it's because they didn't give the land its Sabbath rest. Not one time. They were constantly breaking this. So, but the point is, is that the whole idea was, is to be a day of rest. And we're going to touch way more on this as we keep going on. But just suffice it for tonight, we're not under the law. But guys, it's a really smart thing to do. To work six days and, at least, you know, and take at least that one day of just resting. Well, then he goes on to talk about number five. He says, honor your father and your mother uh, that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God, that the Lord your God is giving you. And so the idea is there, obey them and honor them. And um, it's this, there's a promise attached to them. Like if you do this, you're going to prosper in the land. Maybe jot down next to it, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 2. This is where Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. And he says it's the first a commandment with a promise. I was thinking about this. Isn't it interesting that Paul says also in 1 Timothy 3 that one of the signs of the last days will be that children will be disobedient to their parents. One of the telltale signs that the world is coming to an end, rampant 
disobedience of, ki- of kids to their parents. Interesting. I have some more illustrations I wanted to talk about, but time is fleeting, so let's move on. Um, verse 13 and commandment number um, 6. By the way, just to say this quickly, the first four commandments are kind of God-word, and the last six are kind of like man-word, if that makes sense. The first four are dealing with the issue of worship to God. The last six are dealing with our dealings with one another. Well, the sixth one is this, uh, you shall not murder. Murder is murder. Um, The Hebrew word for murder there includes... (laughs) premeditated murder, but it also includes like negligence and things like that. Um, he's not saying, I'll just say this about that, he's not saying you, there's never a time to kill. He's saying you shall not murder, and there's a difference. Um, he says in verse 14, forgive me before I leave that, verse 13. I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. Jesus interpreted some of these laws. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, you've heard it said, and he's referring to the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry at his brother without a cause is in danger of judgment. What was he saying? You may not have actually done the deed, but if you've got your rage in your heart towards your brother, you're actually guilty of it. Because, you know, the Pharisees and the religious people, they could go down the list and be, I've never done that, never done that, never done that. But you've thought about it. You've fantasized about it. Killing your boss, whatever. <laughs> and they're like, he's like, guilty. And that leads me to the next one. He says, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, adultery is any kind of sexual relationship with somebody that's not your spouse. And again, it would be really easy to say, well, I've never done that. And then Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you have lustful intent in your heart towards a woman, you're already guilty of it. Well, that was a nuclear bomb. Are you saying that if a man lusts after a woman or a woman lusts after a man in their heart and fantasizes or plays that thought out, that that's on par with breaking the law of committing adultery? And the answer to that is yes. Well, wait a minute. That, well, then who can keep these dang things? Bingo! No one. See, this is, this is blowing self-righteousness or any kind of trying to work towards God and your own merit out of the water. And he goes on. You shall not steal. Stealing means taking stuff that doesn't belong to you. <laughs> I'm so ashamed of this, man. I, I look back in my junior high days and early days, and I was a little thief sometimes. Not big stuff, just food. <laughs> just, I mean, just stuff that I'm embarrassed to even look at my parents right now, but I just look back at, man, I stole stuff. I remember working in junior high at the little, like, we had this little snack shack shop, and I was, like, in charge of it. Bad idea. Because there was just handfuls of beef jerky sitting there. Let's move on. (laughs) And whether it's beef jerky or, listen, stealing time from your employer by taking a 12-minute break instead of a 10-minute break, or being on the phone when you should be working or doing the, listen, we've done (laughs) all the moaning and groaning, stop it! (laughs) 
not claiming this on your taxes when you could have, or da da. In some way or another, there's not a person in here that we haven't stolen. Whether, but I didn't mean to. Here's the thing: the law doesn't care if you meant to or not. It's a thermometer that tells you what the temperature is. It's a mirror that says what it is. It's not asking you what your intent was, if you tried real hard. That's the point. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To sin means to miss the mark. Whether you're trying to hit the mark or whether you don't care where the mark is, it doesn't matter. We've all missed it. This is so painful. Let's keep going. Verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your brother. So we often say thou shalt not lie. And that's, that's true. You shall not lie. But the idea of false witness kind of takes it to another level. The idea of falseness there is deception. Because sometimes you can say the right information, but you can be deceitful in the way that you do it. And in some way, I don't have to expound on this, because in some way, shape, or form, we know we've all at one point said a lie, right? We have. Oh, you have it? Try this one on. Honey, does this dress make me look fat? No. I have actually never had to say that as a lie, but... um, do you like this color on me? Or do you? Did? Yes. I, I don't, that's, I'm getting so many people in trouble right now. I shouldn't do this. I'm actually a little tongue-in-cheek on those. But the point is, is that we've all lied. Okay, here's, here's the killer, though. You guys read? This is the backbreaker. This is the pile driver. This is the suplex. This is, this is the one, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, or your neighbor's wife, or his servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, I can honestly say I've never coveted my neighbor's donkey. (laughs) But guys, in our context, the idea of covetousness is that of a strong desire to have something that somebody else has. And he says, you're not to covet your neighbor's wife. You're not to compare your wife to his wife. You're not to compare his, her husband to, to your husband. You're not to wish that you, he was more like that or she was more like that. You're not, to, you're not to walk into someone's house and be like, how come they have a house like this and how come I can't have a house like this? You're not to look at their new truck. They just pull up and be like, how come they got a truck? How come their surfboard's like that? How come that, 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 that? And guys, it can be 101 little things. Do you understand that our whole advertising culture in our, you know, the West here, it's all driven by covetousness. You watch a commercial, you're like, I didn't even know I needed that or wanted that, but now I know. It's designed to get us to want stuff that we don't really need. Somebody once said that covetousness is wanting more of something you already have enough of. The Bible teaches us to be content. Paul says, by the Spirit, if you have food and and a shirt, be content. And, and haven't we all found, by the way, that the, the happiest we ever are or the people that we see that are the happiest are not the ones that necessarily have the most stuff. They're just content with the stuff they have. But if you are always discontent, always got to have something more, got to have a bigger house, got to have this, got to have that, it'll wreck you. Actually, the New Testament in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, says that covetousness is idolatry. Puts it right back up to one and two. (laughs) And we've all, we're guilty of that. Man, if you don't, by the way, covetousness was, that's what, that's what slayed Paul. Remember, he's like, I didn't do any of the other stuff, but then 
He says, but then the law came in, and he realized he coveted. He probably wasn't after some material thing. He wanted position. He wanted to be looked at as the smart guy or the holy, most holy Pharisee guy. And God's like, you're, you're coveting. And it slew him. So no one gets out of here alive, you guys. We all get pegged on this, and that's the point. I mean, if you add this to what we know in the New Testament, proper interpretation of this, the only conclusion anyone can come to is, I am guilty as sin. Of sin. And what makes it worse is there's nothing you can do to undo your sin. That's why when you read this and you read it correctly and you meditate on it, it ought to leave you in a place of feeling undone and helpless. That's a good thing because then enter Jesus who fulfilled this law perfectly, died for our breaking of it, and then credited his perfect righteous life to us. It's, grace is scandalous. Amen? Well, what we're, let's do this tonight. Let's just look at the response of the people, and then we can save the last chunk um, until next week. It actually will flow better anyway. So let's look at verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, again, that crazy scene, the people were afraid and they trembled, and they stood afar off and then uh, and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And then he says in verse 21, the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So they, in essence, freak out. I've already mentioned this. They can't handle it. It's too much. That trumpet sound, the thunder, the shaking, the lightning, the smoke, the fire, these commandments. And they're like, Moses, we cannot do this. You talk to him. Tell us what he said. Promise we'll do it. Pinky promise, we'll do it. But we can't handle it. It's too intense. And he's like, don't fear. Listen, God did this for your sake. Did you guys catch that? It's funny because he says, don't fear, but then what's he say? God did this so you would fear him. He's not going to kill you, but he did show a little bit of his glory that it might put the fear of God in you. And the idea was, if you walk in the fear of God, if you remember his holiness and all this, you walk in that, you're going to hate evil. That's what the Proverbs say. The fear of the Lord is to hate what's evil. And you hate it because you know it's against him and who's holy. And that's another sermon. But we'll just end on this. Notice twice in this little section I read, a couple verses, there's this phrase. And they stood afar off. And they stood afar off. Why did they stand afar off? Because of the holiness of God, because of the law of God. And I just want to just say this in closing, is that this is what the law does. This is what the law does. It pushes us afar off. We realize his holiness. We realize our sinfulness. We realize we can't approach, and I know this is now like two weeks of this theme, and, and I'm just repeating it because it's here again. But, and here's the thing. If you try to live your Christian life under like a law kind of understanding, you, you'll never get to have that intimacy with God. You cannot draw near to God on the law. The law always pushes us back. That's why I love in um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. 
says this. We'll end on this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. You guys are super patient. Read ahead, okay? Read, read ahead um, chapter, the rest of this chapter and into chapter 21, and we'll break it down next week. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we thank you for your law because there's nothing wrong with your law. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's so good. And Lord, we say the law is not the problem. The problem is us. We're, we're not able to do it. This really does expose how sinful we are, Lord. We're not, it's not just that we've done sinful things. We're sinful to the core. And so, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you that even though we are guilty and stained and sinful, you love us anyway. And you came and you died for things you never did wrong, but all the stuff we did wrong. You shed your blood for our breaking of all of these laws. And you gave us forgiveness. And you gave us your righteousness. And we who were afar off, you brought us close into relationship with you. And Lord, how can we say thank you enough? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.